today. We're looking at humility towards one another. Now, last week, Catherine spoke about encouraging one another, and there are a series of one another's scattered through the New Testament that we will be looking at once we finish this series in 1 Peter. However, what a pleasant coincidence to have one of the one another's tucked up here in today's reading. And so the one another that we'll be looking at is being humble towards one another. Now in 1996, a young man by the name of Mark Driscoll co-founded a church in Seattle in Washington, the United States. Despite being only in his mid-twenties, in a short time, Mars Hill Church had 14,000 members in 15 different locations, less than 20 years. That's, imagine 15 churches, 1,000 in each church, and he would beam himself in preaching to those 15,000 or 14,000 people. Amazing, isn't it? Why his success? Well, Driscoll was gifted and edgy. He'd had a rough non-Christian upbringing and had a dramatic conversion, and he made much of the classic bad boy made good, and he kept his rough edge as a point of difference, his brand. And his edginess appealed to non-church folk as well as the church folk that were a little bit bored with regular type worship. Now, not only this, his timing was wonderful when it came to the internet because he very quickly, this is in the early 19, late 1990s, when the internet was in its infancy, he recognised the power that he could harness. And he became the first internet celebrity pastor in the United States. He authored a number of popular Christian books and he was affirmed by the most respected Christian leaders, those baby boomers that were looking for the new up-and-coming talent in the United States. And so Mark Driscoll was recognised by these elder statesmen, godly men, as the new leadership to bring in the new generation. However, under the surface, all was not well. Driscoll moved from co-founder to authoritative dictator. He centralised all power in the church to himself. And because he was so gifted... And because the church numbers and finances were growing staggering amounts each year, and because he was acclaimed both within the church and outside the church, his serious character flaws, and there were many, were never challenged. Instead, his bad behaviour was, people put it down to him being eccentric. Or they would say, well, that's just the way Mark is. And many in the church took pride in the fact that their pastor was remarkably successful and hip. However, a combination of his youth, giftedness, incredible success with no accountability led to a systematic culture of pride. The rot started at the top and filtered down till a dramatic fall of Mars Hill was just a matter of time. And it all happened in 2014 where Driscoll could no longer charm his way out of public criticism and formal complaints about his abusive behaviour. Driscoll was forced to resign, and the culture of pride was so deep that within three months, the Mars Hill Church was dissolved. The 15 church sites mostly closed down, and though a few struggled as independent churches. Three months, 14,000 people gone. 
what sums this up to me was an incident that happened early in Driscoll's ministry when he was associated with the Gospel Coalition. Now, the Gospel Coalition uh, as a group of American Christian leaders whom I respect and admire, people like Tim Keller, John Piper, Piper, Don Carson. In fact, the Gospel Coalition is the only um, Facebook group that I that I subscribe to so I can get their updates. Anyway, when Mark was young and in their midst, it was assumed that he would learn from these wonderful godly men. But no, Driscoll was recorded as saying this, I cannot learn or submit to John Piper because my church is bigger than his. What an insight to the window of that man's heart. A rising star, but pride would be his downfall. And though this is an extreme case, this is an extreme case, this is exactly what our passage in 1 Peter is looking at. So let's turn to our passage, which is in 1 Peter chapter 5. Young men, in the same way be submissive to those who are older, all of you. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now here we have two opposing qualities. We've got humility and pride. Humility is to be fostered, and pride is to be stamped out. Now all of this was very counter-cultural at the time. You see, in biblical days, the Greek word humility here is translated gentle, modest, and deferring to others. And in the first century, it was a derogatory term. To be called humble was an insult. It was considered a sign of weakness. It was the attitude of a slave. And so the wider community would never use the word humility in a positive way. It was a character flaw compared to strength. And so in those days, it was thought, thought that social stability was based on fear, that the strongest people lorded it over those underneath and ruled by fear. And it all depended where you were on the pecking order, and slaves were the lowest of the slave, and so gentleness, difference, and modesty was for slaves and to keep them in their place. Now contrast this with the Bible. The same word humility or a variation of it is used 270 times in God's word. And the Bible was taking aim at the culture of its day with the revolutionary idea that humility was a virtue to be aspired to. And so notice that verse 5, Peter addresses first of all the young men. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Now, why do you think Peter singles out the young men? I mean, young men don't have a monopoly on pride, do they? Well, there's a couple of possibilities. One of them is that Peter has just been talking to the elders and has been saying, do not lord it over those under your care, be shepherds. Now, these young men will not have been used to that gentle type of leadership. They would have been used to elders bossing them around. And so maybe Peter was saying, well, maybe these young men won't respond to this gentle leadership. I better tell them to submit. That's one possibility. Maybe it's because young men have a propensity to be arrogant and cocky and full of themselves. Do you think? Maybe. 
Maybe that's why Peter wrote that. However, he doesn't spend time dwelling on that for the young men because he moves straight on to make sure that all of you, and this is verse 5, the second part of verse 5, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. All of you. Not just the young men, but all of the people in the church and the elders and the leadership as well. Again, unheard of in Greco-Roman society where the leaders were to lord it over, not to be equally humble. See how revolutionary this is. Now, given that it was countercultural, given that it would be perceived negatively by the wider community and they may even be mocked if they said they were humble or being observed to be humble, why would Peter's readers want to clothe themselves with humility? Well, that's the next part of verse 5. I'll read that verse again. All of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another because, here comes the reason, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So this is our motivation for embracing humility. Proverbs 3.34, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now this proverb has a double warning. The first part of the warning is, God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Now, what is pride? In a spiritual sense, pride is grasping to be equal with God. It is determining to be independent of God. Pride is going my way. Pride is doing it my way, even at the expense of God and others. I mean, think back to Adam and Eve. What was the temptation Eve faced in the garden? Well, if she ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she would be like God. That's what Satan whispered into her ear, wasn't it? Take and eat and you'll be like God. And so she grasped the fruit and Adam and Eve ate. They tried to grasp being equality with God. It wasn't just that this piece of fruit was the nicest looking fruit in the garden. It had nothing to do with it. What they wanted to do was to be equal with God and push God to the side. And what catastrophic results, sin entered the human race. Our relationship with God was broken. And Adam and Eve were excluded from God's presence. They were rejected from the garden. And this theme of God opposing the proud runs through the whole Bible. God opposed Pharaoh, who hardened his heart towards God. God opposed the various wicked kings of Israel that hardened their heart towards God. And God opposed the Pharisees in the New Testament who hardened their heart to God. God is clear. Because he opposes the proud, do not let pride take root in the local church. Do not let pride take root in St. Andrews. So this is the first warning of the proverb. The second is that the proud do not receive God's grace. It's only the humble who receive salvation. And this is why humility is not an optional extra, for there is no salvation without humility. Now, it's a bit of a bold claim for the preacher to make, isn't it? There is no salvation without humility. Am I right? Well, what do I mean by that? Well, if anyone comes to God and says, God, I want a relationship with you. Look at all my accomplishments. Look at all that I've done. 
How do you think God's going to respond? God's going to say to them, You do not know who I am. You do not know who you are. And you do not know what the cross of Jesus means. However, if any of us come saying, Oh Lord, I'm so sorry. I repent. I need your grace. I've got nothing to offer you that will enable me to find favour with you. Oh, for Jesus' sake, accept me. Now, what's that? Well, yes, it is faith and grace, but it's humility, isn't it? And that's why humility is not an optional extra for Christians. Let me put it this way. The only thing that can kill you eternally is a lack of humility. Is pride. You can lack anything else, but if you lack humility, then you will not be saved because humility connects us with God. And this is why we're instructed in uh, 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he might lift you up in due time. Now the question is, how do we humble ourselves? How do we clothe ourselves with humility? How do we foster ourselves with humility? Well, to get practical and to look at the example of Jesus himself, we're going to move to Philippians chapter 2, the most famous of verses on or passages on humility. Why is it so famous? Because we see Jesus putting humility into work. We see Jesus humbling himself under God's mighty hand and we see God lifting Jesus up. Now, Philippians, it was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, and he was giving exactly the same pastoral advice that Peter was giving to his readers. Both Peter and Paul are saying, make humility a priority. Make humility a priority. They have slightly different approaches, but it's the same effect thereafter. So what does Paul say? Well, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Notice we've got the same contrast here as we have in 1 Peter, the contrast of pride versus humility, though Paul calls pride selfish ambition and vain conceit. And so we're just like in 1 Peter, we have nothing to do with pride, nothing to do with selfish ambition and vain conceit, but to embrace humility. Now what's new to this passage is it tells us how to foster humility, how to clothe ourselves and nurture humility. Now this is always a challenge because this is how it normally works. As soon as I make progress in humility, I start to feel pleased with myself. And then I see someone who is proud and I say, gosh, look at how proud that person is. I'm glad I'm not like him. It happens, doesn't it? Gosh, look how proud Mark Driscoll is. I'm glad I'm not like him. And guess what's happening? Pride is slipping in the back door. Of all the virtues, humility is the most shy. Because as soon as you focus on humility, it kind of, skirts away as pride slips in. I mean, you can focus on encouraging one another. That's easy, isn't it? You can focus on loving each other. I mean, it may be hard, but you kind of know where you're going. But humility, 
it's really hard to focus on. And so Philippians gives us the workaround that reduces the options or the chance of pride slipping in the back door. And that is, we are to look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's how we foster humility. It's not that we ignore our own interests. It's just that we are intentional about looking to the interests of others. Now, here's a hopeful, helpful slogan, a modern-day proverb that you may have heard before, which I think is tremendously helpful. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's a bit tricky, that one, isn't it? You've got to think, well, what's, what's happening here? Let me unpack that. Humility is not thinking, I am a miserable worm of a person. And that's not biblical humility. Thinking, I'm just an awful person. That is false humility. Now and again, it may be true that we've done something that we deserve that comment. But deep in ourselves, humility is not, I am a miserable worm of a person. That's not humility. Humility is instead thinking like this. How can I help Jane, who's having some problems at work? Thinking less about yourself and thinking about others. Does it make sense? Once you get, once you understand that slogan, you can say, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's that's humility." Let me, let's look at it this way. Imagine tomorrow at work or at the bridge club, uh, someone comes and says, "Oh, geez, my elbows are working so well. I can bend them and move my arms around." That's a little bit unusual, isn't it? And you'd be thinking. I wonder why they're talking about their elbows. Maybe their elbow's been sore. Because when your elbow is working well, you don't even think about it, do you? Or maybe someone comes and says, gosh, my ankle is strong and I can stand on it and I can move it and it takes my weight and they go on and on and you think to yourself, that's a bit unusual. Maybe they've just come out of spraining their ankle or they've had their ankle in a moon boot. Because it's, when your ankle is working well, you spend no time thinking about it and it's the same with a healthy sense of self a humble person isn't self-absorbed spending all their time thinking about themselves a humble person isn't worried about what people think a humble person uh, isn't easily offended then lies awake at night they don't think of themselves much at all in the same way that when your elbow or ankle is working well you don't think about your ankle or elbow at all. And this is how we clothe ourselves with humility, not by thinking how we can be more humble, but looking to the interests of others. Of not spending all our time trying to work out how to bless ourselves, you know, not to spend all our time planning to bless ourselves and make our lives happier, but to spend time on how we can bless others. Now, of course, our passage for Philippians moves from instructing us to look to the interests of others to showing how Jesus makes this wonderfully and puts it into practice so well. And then we pick up this part, and uh, and and this is um, thought to be a hymn. And so, you know, if you have your Bibles there, you'll notice that this next bit is, is set out in verse like the Psalms are. Um, but it's thought that this next bit is a hymn that either Paul wrote or was a hymn that the, that the Christians knew and sung among themselves. Verse 5. 
your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And here comes the hymn. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Equality with God, something to be grasped. Where have we heard about that? See, it was Adam and Eve that attempted to grasp equality with God by grabbing the fruit. And here, the hymn makes it very clear that Jesus refused to grasp equality with God. But instead, verse 7, But Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Yes, instead of grasping, Jesus took the nature of a servant. Why? What does a servant do? A servant looks to the needs of others. So Jesus is putting all this into practice, taking on the nature of a servant, learning or, or putting into practice, looking to the needs or the interests of others. And then verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. You see, not only did Jesus humble himself by serving, but he humbled himself even to death on the cross. And remember, Jesus could have summoned a legion of angels to rescue him from that cross, but instead he chose to humbly obey his heavenly Father. And fortunately, blessedly, wonderfully, the story does not end with Jesus in the grave. For in due time, God lifted him up. Jesus humbled himself under God's mighty hand, and in due time, Jesus was lifted up. Three days in the grave, and then we read these glorious words, verse 9, Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The words fail to describe the glory and the wonder of these words. Aren't they tremendous? This wonderful arc, this trajectory, but a trajectory instead of starting low and going high and coming back down, it's the opposite. This is the trajectory of Christ, starting high in glory with his heavenly Father and giving it all up and going down to the cross. And then in due time, God exalting him and bringing him back up. That is the trajectory of Christ, the trajectory that we are asked to follow. For we are asked also, back to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. So let's start pulling this together. What have we looked at today? Well, we started with a proud young man, Mark Driscoll someone who was arrogant and unteachable, exactly what our passage in 1 Peter warns us against. And for Even though it was countercultural, we found that the humble heart is highly valued with God and essential for our salvation. And then to find out how to foster humility and what it means by lifting up in due time, we turn to Philippians 2, because to nurture humility, to clothe ourselves with humility, uh, we can't focus on it. Because as soon as we get progress in humility, we start to feel prior. And so the best way to foster humility is to look to the interests of others. 
And this was wonderfully modelled by Jesus, who humbled himself, becoming a servant, to look the interests, first of all, to his heavenly Father, and then to the interests of us. And because Jesus was obedient even to death on the cross, God exalted him to the highest place. No wonder we sing his praises. No wonder our hearts are lifted. No wonder there's a spring in our step when we think of what Christ has done for us. For we, alongside all creation, gladly bend our knee and give Christ all the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we continue to be astounded at your great love and patience for us. We've got nothing to offer you. Even our best works are dirty rags, Lord. However, Jesus humbled himself, become a servant, died on the cross, so that you could lift us up into your presence to be your dearly loved children. Lord, teach us to be humble, to have an attitude of humility amongst ourselves and those around us. Teach us to get the balance right, Lord, of focusing on what we need to focus for ourselves, but also looking to the needs of others. We pray this through Christ our Lord, our dear Saviour. Amen.